Hello and welcome to the G2 podcast. Yes, yeah, so hi everyone, I'm Kat. I do work for G2, but I'm not very used to doing this, so please be patient with me today. Uh, so, I'm going to start off by letting you in on a little secret. Okay, so please be kind to me. Over the years, I have become a fan of EastEnders. So, <laughs> I particularly like when there's been like big storylines, you know, that they go, they go on all the newspapers about who did whatever. And I'm going to show my age here and say that there was one that started at the end of 2010, beginning of 2011. It involved two of the main characters, which I hope are going to appear on the screen, called Kat and Ronnie. Does anyone watch EastEnders, by the way? No, you're making me feel great. <laughs> making me feel really good here, guys. Um, so Kat is the lady with the brown hair. Ronnie is the lady with the blonde hair. The two very main characters at the time, they both ended up being pregnant at the same time on the show, and they both ended up giving birth within a few days of each other. Now, sadly, Ronnie's baby passed away. It was New Year's Eve. She woke up and she found, really sadly, that her baby had died. She gathered him up in his arms, in her arms, and she rushed out into the square just as it, of course, it's EastEnders, just as it turned New Year, midnight, fireworks going off, everyone running, being really happy in the square, shouting. And there she was holding this, her dead baby, basically. And you're really feeling for it's going on, and she's just thinking, how can I get some help? And then in the distance, she hears. Cat's baby crying. And for some reason, other than the writers of any standards will know this, she, has, she sneaks into the room where the baby is and she swaps babies. So she, she changes the clothes and everything. So now, sadly, Cat thinks her baby's died. And Ron, actually, Ronnie's baby's died and she's got Cat's baby. I oh, know you couldn't write it, could you? Well, you could, that's the point. But, <laughs> but. <laughs> So it's a very awful few months where Ronnie's walking around with Kat's baby, pretending it's hers, bringing it up. Kat's obviously massively suffering grief, thinking it's her baby that's died. Fast forward, and I think it's to about April time, Ronnie decides to come clean and gives the baby back to a very surprised cat and consequently ends up being arrested. Fast forward again, another few months, and we're now at the trial of Ronnie. Cat has just given a victim impact statement about how this horrible ordeal has impacted her and how awful it's been. And the judge is ready to pass judgment. And she declares that there's no other option, that Ronnie has to go to prison for a minimum of three years, which seems pretty fair to me. But at that moment in the court, Cat stands up and shouts, no. That's not right. And she tries to get the judge to change her mind. She says that although Ronnie has done such an awful and horrible thing, she does know that same awful pain of what it feels like to lose a child. Here, the victim stood up for the perpetrator. Now, where am I going with this? I'll show you. Let's go. So, <laughs> over the last few weeks, bit of a diversion, over the last few weeks, we have been looking into the life of Abraham. Uh, he's a Bible character from right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis. Um, he can sometimes be referred to as the father of the faith. In the first of our series, Jamie talked about how Abraham, God called Abraham to move from his hometown. I've got a map here now. I don't know if you can see that yellow bit here that says Ur. Uh. That's where Abraham started. And then round that red bit, the other side, there's lots of cities. And basically, that's where Abraham ended up. So, and bear in mind, we, we don't have cars or trucks. That's quite a long way. He's gone quite a long way. 
And then last week, uh, Holly talked about covenant and promises and how um, God promised Abraham that he would bless the whole earth through his family, that he would have as many descendants. Now, you can't see it. It's not a black screen. I promise you it's the night sky. As many descendants as there are stars in the sky. That's why there's that random picture. (laughs) Uh, And that leads us up to where we are today. So today, we're going to be journeying into Genesis chapter 18 and chapter 19. If you want to have it open in your Bibles, if you've got it with you today, um, it's quite a long passage, so I'm just going to like talk us through it. But it's good to have it open. You know, I'm not lying to you. I could be. So good to check. Oh, they're going to regret asking me to speak, aren't they? So, so we start at the beginning of chapter 18. Three visitors are just coming past Abraham's tent. And it's made clear in the passage that one of these visitors is God. Um, I know that's a bit hard to imagine. What does he look like? Did Abraham know who they were at the beginning? I think the other two we learned throughout the passage are angels. So, so much we could dive into, but we're not going to because we don't have time to do that. Um, but I know and I understand it's a bit weird. But yeah, they walk past Abraham's tent. Abraham invites them in, bees a good host, uh, prepares them food. Now, if he, if he turned it to my house all of a sudden and I thought, oh, I'll be kind to you and I'll feed you, I'd be looking what's in the freezer, what's in the fridge, you know. You wouldn't get a great standard, I have to say. But uh, that's not what Abraham does. The Bible actually says he goes and kills a tended calf and then prepares it. So that's going to take some time. This, these people are going to be in his, his tent for quite a while. He prepares fresh bread with the best ingredients and he washes their feet. Good host, this Abraham guy. <laughs> so uh, after they have this food, God again says, like he has done in the previous chapter, that Sarah, this time, his wa- Abraham's wife, who at this point is quite old, is going to have a baby this time next year. Sarah laughs. God then goes, why did you laugh? And Sarah says, I didn't, which is a bit awkward because one then says, well, you did. So bit awkward. And then after that, Abraham sets off with God and these two visitors on their journey. Great summit, pay, <laughs> which was tradition to do at this time. Now, at this point, we come to the really interesting bit of our story in that God decides to let Abraham in on his plan. He decides to tell him what he's going to do next. In verse 20, it says, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they've done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, God and Abraham have quite a good relationship, I think, at this point, reading through. Abraham has just moved a long way, just because God asked him to. Uh, He's just brought him in. God's had this whole covenant thing with him. He's blessed. Uh, God's been, uh, Abraham's been a really good host to God and these visitors, as we've just read about, like lots of good food, feet, all that jazz. And he's shown respect. It's all looking good. And also now, God, the, the maker of the universe, has chosen to let Abraham in on his plan. I mean, that doesn't happen very often. But here, something stirs in Abraham. And Abraham doesn't just stay quiet. He feels like he has to speak up. He has to question, and he has to suggest. So we're just going to read. I'm walking over here because my Bible's really heavy. We're going to read Genesis chapter 18, verses 23 to 28. Okay, so it says, Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? 
far be it for you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the of the ooh, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Then the Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous people is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. And Abraham carries on that way. And he gets God down to say, if there's only 10 righteous people in this place, he will save the city. Now, when I first read this, it reminded me of a, meal t- a regular mealtime in the Bevington household. I will take lots of time and thought and care and prepare a wonderful, healthy meal for my family. I'll, I'll put it in front of them, be really chuffed because I think they're going to love it. And sure enough, very quickly, they'll go, I hate this. And <laughs> I just sit there and go, great, okay. And sure enough, within a few minutes, how many mouthfuls do I have to eat? And thus become a bargaining of how many mouthfuls we have to battle before we can say enough's enough. Now, as their mom, I don't want to force them to eat something that they don't like. But I also know that they need good stuff and they need to be healthy and they need to eat to grow and to do all the things. I try to listen to them whilst at the same time trying to do what's best for them. They trust me as their mum to look after them and they also feel safe enough to say to me when they don't like something, even if it's my cookie. (laughs) Now, God at this point could have become really angry with Abraham. He could have laughed, but that's not what he did. Like a caring parent, he listened, even though he knew the reality of the situation of what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, he's God, he knows. And Abraham too himself would have known what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah and what kind of place it was. His own nephew, Lot, lived there. Now, I can hear you say, well, that's obviously why he stepped in to try and save it, was because his, his nephew was there. But that's not actually what Abraham did. Abraham could have asked God, say, please, could you save Lot, save my family? But that's not what he did. He asked for God to step in and save righteous people, to save the city for the sake of righteous people. He interceded for the, uh, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he stood in that gap. And as I said, that God knew about the situation in Sodom and Gomorrah, but he still listened to Abraham. And we read that from the rest of the passage, that Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed, but Lot and his family were saved. In verse 29 of chapter 19, it says, So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered that Abraham had brought Lot out of the catastrophe. He remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. If Abraham had remained silent and not stood up and not spoke, Lot and his family would have been destroyed. He spoke up and God listens. And I also think this is such a great example to us of how prayer works. It it does matter when we talk to God. Our prayers count. Now, through Abraham, we can see like just a glimpse of what Jesus did for us. While Abraham interceded for the righteous people of Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus stood in our gap between us and God, even when we weren't righteous, when we didn't deserve it. Just like Kat tried to stand in the gap for Ronnie in that trial. See, I knew I'd link it in somewhere. (laughs) This is not just weird. Um, But Jesus went one step further. 
He didn't just speak up for us and he didn't just intercede for us. He actually took our punishment, the punishment that we deserved, our sin, our shame. Um, just like Sodom and Gomorrah deserved it, just like Ronnie deserved it. And he was ultimately destroyed. But unlike Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus rose again and conquered death. So we can have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. We have the chance to become friends with our Savior and to be a child of God. And now, here's the tricky part. As followers of Jesus, he calls for us to stand in that gap. To stand in the gap, not just for our friends, but for our enemies too. And this isn't something that Jesus just implies. He actually says it. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, it says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How good are we at doing that? Now, while I was preparing this talk and um, having to think about it, I was trying to think of an example where someone stood up for their enemy. And, you know, I did ask around as well, and I just couldn't think of many examples. It is so countercultural to do this. But this is what Jesus called to do us to do, because he did it for us, and he asked for us to do it for others. Philip Yancey wrote in his book on prayer, he said, I once envisioned intercession as bringing requests to God that God might not have thought of. Then talking God into granting them. <laughs> now I see intercession as an increase in our awareness. When I pray for another person, I am praying for God to open my eyes that I can see that person as God does and then enter into that stream of love that God, directly, that God directs towards that person. Loving our enemies was never meant to be easy, and God knew that. He calls to us to talk to him about the suffering, about that pain, about the people that hurt us, and then he allows his compassion to become ours as we grow closer to talking to, through talking to him. And also, as we've shown through that story of Abraham, it also can change God's mind. Our prayers matter. A few years ago, in 2019, you might have heard of the Thy Kingdom Come movement, I think, that the Church of England did. Uh, and in, in 2019, they released a series of videos, and I found one. I watched one. And it was the story of Ray and Vi Donovan. They had a son called Chris. And uh, one evening, he was out with his brother, and he was walking home. And as they walked home, they came across a group of 14 young people who were under the influence of drugs and alcohol. And as these young people parted for them to walk through, the youngest one out of the group wanted to make a good impression on his friends and hit Phil. Thus, the others started jumping on him and attacking him. Chris then stepped in to try and intervene and, and save his brother. There then was a bit of a fight. They backed Chris onto the road and he ended up on the floor. Then someone shouted in the distance that they called the police. Someone went to grab Chris to move him off the road, but he was told to leave him. Then, sadly, a car came, managed to swerve and avoid him, but the second one wasn't so lucky. It hit him and dragged him down the road, and sadly, Chris was killed. His parents were overcome with grief, and on, as they were driving in the car from the hospital to a friend's house, Ray turned to his wife and said, you know, as Christians, we're going to have to forgive the people that did this. Now, years later, as part of the Restorative Justice Project, they had a chance to see his attacker before he was released from prison. As uh, Ray, when, he, when the man came into the room, the first thing Ray did was he opened up his arms and gave him a hug. 
Vi, as she hugged him, said that she forgave him, that they forgave him, and that he needed now to move on and to live the life that Chris didn't get the chance to have. Could you do that? Could you even pray for someone that did that? I just want to say, who are you standing in the gap for? Who are you interceding for? And through who is God showing you his compassion? I feel that the response to this message, there's two groups of people that Jesus calls for us to pray for. And the first are, are the righteous people that need rescuing. There are, we all know of situations where it's really difficult to be a Christian in the world, where um, places where you could be killed for, for telling people about Jesus, um, but people still do it. There's been a lot in the news about Israel and Palestine. There will be righteous people in the midst of all this. And we need to pray for those and pray for those people that they get rescued. Get rescued. I love that on IJ Sunday, IJM Sunday that we did a few weeks ago, that the kids were involved and we talked to the kids about how we prayed for persecutors. Because Jesus is for everyone, even for the bad guys. And that leads me on to talking about the second group of people that God calls us to pray for. The people that persecute us. Now, there's many ways we can look at this. We can look at it on the global scale and look at um, who we should pray for in terms of groups of Christians and what uh, organizations we can pray for and things like that. But I just want to challenge you to break it down personally because I think it's easy to jump to the big and sometimes we can miss the little and the harder ones. I think it's sometimes really hard to think of our enemies because it's not really a phrase we tend to talk about that someone's my enemy. It's, it's not really a common thing that we do. But we've all had people that have hurt us. We've all had people that have caused us pain. So my question to you is, who's done that for you? Who's caused you pain and who's hurt you? And are you prepared to pray for them? Because that's what God calls you to do. And I want to stand here and say, it's not an easy thing to do. I don't stand here saying it's perfect and I've done it and that's how I live my life. The preparing this talk has been quite a challenge for me about how I need to do it more. Um, but I think it is a challenge because I think we miss out by not doing. God wants us to see the world through his eyes, having compassion and love for those who hurt us. So I just want to challenge you to step out of your comfort zone. Have a go at praying for those people that are hard to pray for and just see what God can show you.